Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel, the good news, according to John. Let's share in God's good word together. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And we are finishing up our sermon series uh, following the election. Now what? Now what? To embrace a stranger as our own, as one's own, it is our nature. That is who the people of God are to be. Is it our nature as a church? Is it your nature? You see, there's this longing in all of us across history to be loved and protected and secure, especially especially when we feel vulnerable, when we're cold and afraid and lonely. We need protection. We need to be secure. And this is true for all people in all places at all times across the world. It's what it is to be human, to need a God, to need the people of God to come and to come alongside. For a long time, I have followed David Brooks of the New York Times. He's a conservative columnist. Uh, I've watched him quite a bit of late, uh, and I really appreciate uh, this quote that he has in one of his books. He says, we live in a culture that teaches us to promote and advertise ourselves. I think that's because we feel vulnerable. And to master the skills required for success. But that gives little encouragement to humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation, which are necessary for building character. So in our culture today... Where do you find or where do you learn these concepts like humility, sympathy, and honest self-confrontation? The early church fathers would call this the prayer of examine. It's the church, friends. This is our job. This is who we are to be. People who teach the world by our own example, ourselves and the world, humility, sympathy, and self-confrontation. Honesty. Honest self-confrontation. Now, it used to be that uh, the church would have maybe an hour, an hour and a half, uh, once every seven days. That's a tiny fraction of the time if you look at the entirety of your week, just an hour, an hour and a half a week. Um, But that was my grandparents' time that the church had that kind of sway, that tiny sway. Today, the average person in America says that they are a regular attender of church if they come 1.2 times a month. And so we have roughly an hour and a half once a month to try to you know, stem the tide of the cultural waves that are upon us. That we can again reconnect with things like humility and sympathy and honest assessment of where we are as the people of God, as a person of God. And, and I know that this is hard and I know that it is a vulnerable time. And you might say, well, how, how do you know? You know, it's not just the things that are on TV. Well, partly I know because I continue to receive emails from congregants from people who really do have true anxiety uh, and fear about where our country is headed and what's going on. This week, I received an email that just broke my heart. And and not because uh, they didn't like everything about my sermon from last week, um, but, but largely because I know this family and I love this family and I know what she shares with me is true. From a mother of our own church family, she writes to me, She says, I listened to your sermon online today. 
And I was surprised to hear you indicate that you were surprised at racism in our town, in Edmond. It took me a beat to realize that you're white and not a target, so you wouldn't know or necessarily pick up on it. I was slapped in the face with racism in Edmond within a few days of bringing our daughter home and have found that there is a pretty steady drip of it here. You see, our daughter is an immigrant with U.S. citizenship. And she asked me after the election last week if she would have to go to school in Vietnam, if she was to have to return and to live there. Her little daughter, she was afraid because of the election. She had been told at school that Trump only likes white people and that she was afraid she was going to have to go back to Vietnam. As a small child in our town, in our family of faith. And then she writes, I also have friends and family members who are gay and lesbian who have a real reason to fear these days. And the email goes on. And as your pastor, let me, let me simply say this. When you come and take vows of membership in any United Methodist Church anywhere on the globe, we are one of two global um, religious groups in the world that are Christian, the Roman Catholic Church uh, and the United Methodist Church, the only two truly global connected churches in the world. And when any person comes in the United Methodist Church and they stand before us, many of you have done this as members, we say to you, uh, will you support uh, the church, which is open to people of all nations, all races, right? All people. This is who we are as United Methodist. This is who we are. And the correct answer is, I will. I will. And I will stand up to injustice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. These are the vows of membership that each and every United Methodist member takes and holds and lives out by the grace of God. And you might say, well, you know, aren't you, aren't you overdoing it? Okay, okay, maybe there's a problem here or there, you know, with a family or two. And, and, and friends, look, it is a difficult time to be a family of mixed race in our town in this time. And we have numbers of families like that in our church whom we love and who we stand with and whom we will stand with. And you, and you say, well, you know, isn't that just a few? Well, uh, I asked my staff to do some research and to do the top Google searches uh, following the election uh, of what words are being looked up and what do they mean and how do we live into them? And is it just here or is it really more widespread? And, and one of the first words that pops up, probably won't surprise you, is xenophobia. Uh, I think most people just want to know what does it mean and how do you spell it? And it's a big, long word. And this is an intense or irrational dislike or fear of people from other countries. One of the very top searches in Google over the last few weeks. Uh, the second one, also hard to spell but won't surprise you, misogyny. Which is a dislike of, a contempt for, or an ingrained prejudice against women. This is what people are looking up. And you know the third one that people are looking up this week? They want to know about Harry Potter and how that's going. You know, it came out this weekend. I'm just telling you, you know, these are the trends on Google. You can look them up yourself. It, it, it's an interesting time to live in our culture, isn't it? You see, and when people feel anxious, when they feel threatened, when they, they feel like their, their culture is out of control, people across time have looked not to God, but to government with consequences that are tragic. People across time have looked to governments, that's your blank there if you're following along, to bring cohesiveness and security. 
We look to our leaders. We look to the military. But as we do these things if with our governments, governments in every country, in every tribe, in every nation, across every time, also increase taxes, restrict personal liberty, and create a military of which they ask the populace to serve in and die for. That's what governments do. It, it simply is the case. It hasn't always been the case, though. If you go back, um, for those of you who were in Disciple Bible study, me, Bible study with me in weeks 8, 9, and 10, 11, uh, what you find is there was, a, there was a great long period of time where the people of God were known as a theocracy, where God was the leader and the people followed God uh, by a, a pillar of fire uh, or a cloud. And God was the leader and, and other people helped them along, people like Abraham or Moses or Joshua. And the people cried out for a king. They wanted to be like the other countries. And God said, you don't need that. What you need is me. And they said, no, no, no. Give us a king. And so God gave them what they prayed for. And they got Saul. And Saul was okay for a little bit. Until he became so paranoid about losing his power that he started killing off people that he thought might not like him. And then there's David. He's certainly a mixed bag. Solomon. And by the end of Solomon's reign, at the end of the United Monarchy in 922 B.C., only 200 years later, by 722, the northern kingdom of, Assyria, uh, of Israel has fallen to Assyria, and the northern kingdom is wiped out. And by 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah has been overrun by Babylon. And, and the great kings of Israel are gone. And the people are enslaved and brutalized uh, in what, it, what now would be Iran and Iraq uh, and Syria and Turkey, those areas. The good days, as they knew it, were over. And it's, it's in through these times that the people of God would cry out in the Psalms. They would take their psalm books and they would, they would sing out to God, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are yours. How many nations? All of them. They understood that we need God to be God of not one people, but of all people. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are yours. All of them. All of them. And this isn't new to us. It was certainly true in the time of Jesus. And the question in Jesus' day was, how will peace be brought to earth? How will the kingdom of God come to earth? And I have friends uh, of mine who will say things like this to me. Well, wouldn't it just be great if we could just live when Jesus lived? You know, we could hold Jesus' hand and walk down the streets of Jerusalem. Wouldn't it be wonderful? To which I say, oh no. No, that would be terrible. The first century church was so heavily persecuted uh, that people were dipped in wax and sawn in two. They were used as candles at Roman parties. It was the worst time to be a Christian, but it was also the time that the church grew the fastest. The church, has, you see, has always grown the most when it had the least and was most persecuted because it weeded out the fakers. Right? When, when you knew your life was on the line to be a Christian, it meant something in ways that aren't true in our culture today. Not yet. It is very important that we understand that persecution has a way of purifying the church. That we get first things first and, and first things right. But we need not romanticize this time. In Jesus' day, like our time, people did not agree on what it was to rise up and be the people of God and to work with the government that was around them. So there were three options, three primary options. John Ortberg writes in his book, Who is This Man? Uh, and I think he does it very well. He says option one were the zealots. And the zealots decided to revolt. They intended to overthrow Rome using any means, including violence. You might remember that there were zealots among the disciples. There were zealots who followed Jesus. And, and the zealots understood 
that Rome was the occupying force and they were willing to do anything to get out from underneath them. And many of them thought that Jesus was going to help them do it. There was also a second group that we'll get to in just a second known as the Essenes. And the Essenes had given up all hope. And I want to show you why. Uh, After the first temple was burned to the ground in 586 uh, with the Babylonian exile, um, a second temple was rebuilt. Uh, This is a replica of that uh, as, as it would might look during Passover. And so here is... Um, you know, the temple and the, the booths over here for money changing. But anybody know what this is over here? That is the Antonia Fortress. That's where Rome hung out. That was the Roman barracks. You see, there was nothing that happened within Israel or within the temple that Rome didn't oversee. They were in cahoots together. There was nothing that happened down here that they weren't watching. And, and if you wanted a perspective of what it would be like to try to go to the temple with Roman looking at you, it looked like that. There was no mistaking it. Whatever happened in the temple, Rome knew about. They were making sure it went their way. And so if you were in a scene, and they're like, look, the zealots are going to get us all killed. Uh, we just need to get out of here. And so they decided to withdraw. They're like, the whole thing's corrupt. The temple's corrupt. The money system's corrupt. Caesar's corrupt. The temple priests are corrupt. We just got to get out of here. And so roughly 50 to 70 miles right before you get to the Dead Sea, the scenes, they simply left. They left Jerusalem. They went out into the wilderness, into the Judean desert, and they lived in caves. And they prayed to God to come and basically wipe out the bad guys uh, and leave them. That they understood themselves to be the sons of light. And they were praying to God that God would be just and God would do what only God could do. And then when it was all worked out, then, then they would come to power and be people of light and love. And, and, and I can understand that. I mean, some of, some of you, uh, I mean, I know I've felt this way sometimes of late. It's like, well, what do you do? I mean, every, every decision is bad. Every person you could possibly elect uh, doesn't represent me, and I just throw my hands up. I, I want to go live in a cave. That's how these folks felt. They were these scenes. And then you had the pragmatists. You had the Sadducees. And they decided to assimilate. They're like, look, if you can't beat them, and you can't beat them, then join them. Now, the Sadducees were the temple priests. They worked with Rome. They decided that they needed to govern together. If the people got out of hand, they were going to get wiped out. So let's be smart about this, friends. Let's just be smart. Let's be pragmatists. Let's work this out. And, and Jesus, they kept trying to get Jesus trapped in one of these three groups. And Jesus would say to the zealots, No, zealots, the kingdom of God will not come through violence. And, and then to the Essenes, um, they were like, Well, well, Jesus just escaped with us. And then Jesus went out and did things like touch lepers and, and spoke with prostitutes and Gentiles and he ate with sinners. No, he says, we're not going to withdraw and be Essenes. And, and then they said, well, we'll just you know, work with the, the Romans, be a Sadducee. And Jesus says, no. He says, no to that as well. You see, Jesus was doing something that no one else had done before. He was taking the very things that politics tries to separate and he was bringing them together. I'd mentioned that Simon was a zealot. You might remember that Matthew was a tax collector. Zealots hated Rome. Tax collectors worked for Rome. And you know what Jesus said, according to John Ortberg? Hey, Simon, Matthew, your roommates, good luck. Let's work this out. And they sat down at the same table, and they broke bread together. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me for all the world. For all the world. As I prepare for these sermons, I watch a number of different preachers across the nature, nation. One of my favorites uh, is Reverend Adam Hamilton uh, of our flagship church up in Kansas City, uh, United Methodist Church of the Resurrection. And he said this last week, I thought was really good. He said, What is true of us as individuals is true of us as a nation. 
right? Because a nation is simply made up of, of the people that live in it. So whatever is true of us as individuals is true of us as a nation. So let me ask you this question. What would our country look like if it acted like you? If it acted like us as a church? Would our country be more loving? Would it be more kind? Would it be more compassionate? Would it be uh, more unified? What would it look like? What would it look like? Would the world be more connected to people whom politics separated? And John Ortberg closes the chapter like this. He says, Jesus might have said something like this. When they hate us, and a lot of them will, when they call us names and throw us in prison and even kill some of us, we won't fight back, we won't run away, and we won't give in. We will just keep loving them. We will just keep inviting them to join us. That's my strategy. What do you think? What do you think if the people of God took that strategy on today and continued to bring together things that the world would try to separate and tear apart? What if we continually loved every person, especially those we disagree with, and loved them into the kingdom of God? What would our country look like if it acted like you and me? Well, part of the answer, Jesus says, is that all of us are to be what? One, in love. All of us. Even the people at Thanksgiving, at your table on Thursday, all of us are to be one. Jesus says it like this in the Gospel of John, I and them and you and me, that they may become completely one. Not fake unity, not glossing over differences, but really loving one another. And why? Jesus says, so that the world may know that you have sent me, speaking about God the Father, and have loved them even as you have loved me, because God so loved the what? The world, the entire world, friends. This is what we are to learn, that God sent Jesus and God loves the entire world. And the world will know the love of Jesus by how we treat one another, love one another, and all the people of the world. All the people of the world. The early church had to decide how to live with differences. It was a very different place. You could argue that it was even more diverse than we are today. If you look at the book of Acts chapter 2, Jews from every tribe under heaven... All different nations, all different kinds of people, all different kinds of languages came together. And it was the Holy Spirit that drew them together. But then they had to learn how to live out this faith. I would remind you that Jesus uh, was Jewish. He knew the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, cold. He knew it. He went to the temple as a 12-year-old. He taught. They were astounded at his teaching. Because he spoke with someone with authority. Not just, just not saying words, but he actually knew what he was talking about. And people began to follow him. But Friends, this was a very Jewish culture. It was in a Jewish context. And the early church had to decide, well, if I want to follow Jesus, you also have to follow all the Jewish laws. Who's in? And how do you know? And how much of the Jewish life do you actually have to embrace in order to continue to follow Jesus? In Acts 15, it comes to a boiling point. They have to decide who's going to be able to follow Jesus, who's going to be a Christian. And the writer Luke uh, writes this down in the book of Acts in chapter 15. He says, Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In essence, what they're saying there is unless you take on the customs and the rituals that we all have taken on, you can't be one of us. You have to live it out like us, and Jesus is your Savior. And, And it brings out all the big hitters of the faith. Paul and Barnabas, they had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas had some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles, right? The the 12 and Matthias added in, and the elders. 
And after there had been, what? Much debate. This wasn't a little thing. After much debate, Peter, right, the one that walks on water, the rock upon which God's going to build the church, he says to them, my brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news. Gentiles simply meaning not a Jew. And become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? Peter is saying, look, why in the world would we ask them to do something we couldn't even do ourselves? None of us can live under the law successfully. It takes God's grace. It takes the salvation of Jesus. And I would remind you that the word salvation in Greek is sozo, which means healing. So you could read it like this. On the contrary, we believe that we will be healed, we will be made right through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So if you want to be saved, if you want to be healed, if you want your life to be turned around, it's not going to be by your bootstraps. It's not going to be by following the law, because nobody can pull that off. It's going to be by the grace of the Lord who? Jesus. For everyone who followed him before the resurrection and for all of us who follow him afterwards. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Now, I want you to, to try to grasp the import of this. That Peter, who has been with Jesus for more than three years, he is with him, he walks on water, he, he is there and denies him, he is reconciled to him post-resurrection, he is there at the book of Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes down, he has gone through all of this, and now he says, Somebody who doesn't know any of this, hasn't been with Jesus at all, if the Holy Spirit comes to them, they're saved just like I am. He sets aside his entire life, all of his history, all of his pedigree, all of his ego, he just simply sets it aside. Because it's the grace of Jesus that'll save them just like it'll save me. You say, well, okay, so how do, how do we live this out? This is mind-blowing that God saved the entire world. And those who follow Jesus closest and best are now welcoming everyone. They set their entire life aside. So this is how we begin to live this out. First of all, we pray, because we're not going to do it in our own strength. We're going to pray, and we're going to ask the Lord to give us grace with the people in our life. And we're going to ask the Lord, what do you want us to do next? And then secondly, we're going to listen, but we're going to listen not just to people that sound like us already. We're going to listen to different voices. We're going to say to the people at the Thanksgiving table that we disagree with, well, tell me more about that. How, how is that? How is that for you? How is this affecting your family? How can I pray for you? Really, how can I pray for you? How can I bless you? And then thirdly, we're going to show love to those with whom we disagree. The scriptures tell us over and over and over again, to love those that love you is no big deal. Even people who don't have any faith can do that. That's just good business. But not so with us. With us, we're going to love those that hate us. We're going to bless those that persecute us. We're going to serve those unlike us. We're going to bless others. That's who the people of God are. And by the early church, when they're trying to figure this out, Paul writes to the early church in Galatia. He says, friends, we're not going to live like the world. The sermon title for this morning is Choosing Sides. I know it took me a long time to get there, but we're here. So th this is the side I want you to choose. Paul says this, if you'll read this with me. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
There's no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, their natural power and abilities, with its passion and desires. He goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. So we have to choose a side. All of us. All of us. We are to choose a side. And so, friends, it it can look like this. We can love, or we can be indifferent. We can be people of joy, or we can be people of depression. We can be people of peace, or people of disharmony. We can choose patience or frustration. We can choose kindness or intolerance. Generosity or selfishness. Faithfulness or disloyalty. Gentleness or carelessness. And finally, we can be people of self-control or impulsiveness. And friends, as a pastor of nearly 20 years, let me just say this. Impulse control, highly underrated. A lot of people that are in really deep problems in their life don't ever get this one down. Just impulse control. It's very important. So let me ask you, which one sounds better to you? Choose a side. Choose wisely. With all that I am and all that I can, I want you to choose this side over here. Say them with me. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. This is where the kingdom lives and dwells in and through you for the whole world. And you might say, well, that is more than I signed up for this morning. That that is a big list. I mean, seriously. There are a lot of mean people in the world. Don't be one of them. It's a choice. Don't be one of them. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come and live inside of us with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness faithfulness, self-control. Nothing wrong with those things. At the bottom of your sermon notes, there's a little line that asks this, which one will win? Which side's going to win? Which one will win? There's an old Cherokee story that teaches uh, from an old grandfather to the grandson about life. And the old Cherokee says to his grandson, a fight is going on inside me, he says to the boy. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil, anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, ignorance, inferiority, lies, ego. But he continued, the other is good. The other wolf is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And then he said, the same fight is going on inside you, my son. And inside every other person, too. And the grandson thought about this for a minute. And then he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the grandfather said, the one you feed. The one you feed. So we have a choice to make. Choose a side. Feed love. Feed peace. Feed joy. Feed patience. Feed faithfulness, goodness, generosity, self-control. And the world will be changed, transformed by the love of God living in and through you 
the people of God who bring those things together that the world would try to tear apart. Amen? Amen.